Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. My name is Raik van Niekerk and in this podcast series I speak to finance and investment professionals about their investment journeys and why they chose a career in managing other people's money and their investment decisions before they turned pro. The idea is to find a few tips and tricks to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Brian Thomas. He's a director and portfolio manager at Lorium Capital. He's a CA and CFA. He is also a uh, qualified stockbroker. He has been in the asset management business for many years. And before joining Lorium in 2017, he was a fund manager at Coronation and a stockbroker at Deutsche Bank. Brian, thank you so much for your time today. First of all, give us a bit of background. Where did you grow up and when were you first exposed to the investment world? Yeah, thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me along and good initiative this uh, podcast. Um, I'm slightly different to most people that you've interviewed so far and in that I grew up on a farm in Zimbabwe in a little town called Nyamandlovu. It kind of was the start of what has become an investment philosophy for me because I was able to sit and grow up and watch my father reinvest the proceeds of the farming activity back into the farm each year. So every year there was a new field that was planted. And then, you know, when we we left Zimbabwe in 1985 and came down to came down to South Africa, my father invested in a very small service station in Harrysmith. I think some of your Joburg listeners may be familiar with it, a place called Bergview, which he employed exactly the same philosophy as the farming philosophy. Keep on investing. It started with a couple of pumps and we don't own it anymore, but it's now a number of pumps and a number of restaurants, etc. at at that site. And it's that introduction of plowing back any excess capital that you have into your investments that kind of started my interest in the investment world. When I think back to my first sort of investment in the in the stock market with my own money was when I was in, in articles. I did my accounting articles with Deloitte in Johannesburg. It was the late 90s. The tech boom was uh, just beginning. And I remember one of my fellow article clerks saying to me, there's an opportunity cost of not being involved in the market. And he was right. You know, the market was absolutely flying. People were effectively mortgaging their houses to invest in the, in the market. I don't remember exactly which was the very first share I, I bought, but I do remember that Dimension Data, which is no longer listed now, was certainly up there amongst uh, one of the, the hot stocks at the time that uh, existed in my, my small portfolio. Mm. Yeah, Dimension Data, I think that was uh, the biggest example of how a company's share price can absolutely explode and then implode again. And maybe we'll talk about that a bit later. You went the, the CA route, you studied accounting. And w- when did you decide, listen, maybe being an, an accountant is not what I want to do. I'd rather be in the investment world. Rake, I actually got lucky. I was actually quite happy as an auditor, which, uh, which is kind of a strange thing to admit. But I got a call from a friend of mine who happened to be working at Deutsche Bank and said, don't you want to come and chat to these guys? I think you'd be interested in investments. And I'd always been invested, I mean, interested in investments as an article clerk, but actually didn't have any intention really of leaving. 
And it was really fortuitous that uh, I got to join, which was, as I say, very fortuitous because I got to join the best stockbroker, or certainly voted as a best stockbroker in South Africa at the time, joining Deutsche Bank in the early 2000s with an absolutely phenomenal team of talented analysts that uh, that were providing services to to the asset management industry. So my journey was a little bit different to a lot of the other guys that you've interviewed that I didn't go directly into asset management. I spent a full 13 years servicing investment professionals in the asset management, selling the Deutsche Bank uh, uh, stock recommendations, et cetera, to some of the best known investors in, uh, um, in South Africa. And through talking to those people on a daily basis, not only was I learning from the Deutsche Bank team that, uh, that was providing the information, but I was able to have very rich conversations with the best investment professionals in South Africa on a daily basis. And that really is what uh, ignited the investment fire in me. Let's explore your career as a stockbroker because, you know, obviously you need to convince clients to, to buy and, and, and sell certain uh, stocks. And, and it's a totally different approach than actually managing a portfolio. How did that shape your investment strategy and, and the way you view investments? Yeah, it was a tough time to start. Actually, I started in a function called uh, equity sales. And at, at that point, there were no really other equity sales people around. It was kind of a, a new concept that uh, had uh, started overseas, where what happens in a stockbroker is a stockbroker will have a whole uh, team of analysts, and the analysts will end up talking to the analyst at the uh, um, at the buy side institution. So in those days, it was old mutual coronation, et cetera, that we were that we that the analyst was talking to, but no one was actually bringing all of the research together in a concise form for the portfolio manager, the person that was actually pulling the trigger on managing the assets. And it was my role to come in and, as a fairly junior person, pull together all the research on a daily basis and then make calls often very early in the morning before people dropped their kids at school, before they went into their own morning meetings um, to explain to them what the Deutsche Bank view was. And what was very fruitful from that was being able to have those those conversations and debate with very experienced investors the views that I was uh, I was espousing. And those views were, you know, you should be thinking about buying this stock. You should be thinking about selling that stock. This is what we think is going to happen to the earnings of this stock for X, Y, and Z reason. And being able to have that debate really, you know, I guess, was a very good foundation for me in investing. Did you at that stage have your own personal discretionary share portfolio? Yes, we, we were allowed to, to trade uh, on our personal account. And uh, I had mixed successes at that. I mean, firstly, it's always important to point out that uh, one, when you're working at a stock broker, you have to obey all the compliance rules. So you, uh, you obviously can't trade while um, any of your clients are trading. And as a result, there are a number of restrictions that you have in terms of what you're able to trade. One of the, the, the successes, and I was talking about it with my colleague, Rob Olliman, who's now my colleague, Rob Olliman. He was a client at the, at the time at, when I was at, uh, at Deutsche Bank. They were busy investing as a, as a business in the JSE before it became listed. It was what happened in the, in the past is the JSE was owned by the member firms. They had to own a portion of the company. And before it, uh, it listed, effectively, they no longer needed to own shares in the JSE. And Rob had ferreted out that uh, these JSE rights, as they were called, because it gave you the right to purchase the shares when they listed on, the, on its own exchange, were trading very cheaply. 
His funds, however, had a limitation as to the amount of unlisted shares they could own in the, in, in the JSE. And so when Rob had finished with his funds buying into, uh, into the JSE, I asked his permission, um, you know, can I, can I as a broker now, if your order's finished, may I also buy the, the JSE rights? And I bought uh, successfully a, a couple of JSE rights at, uh, at a very cheap price and was able to, uh, to sell them out uh, at a very handsome profit uh, about a year, a year later. You know, once you've made that first awesome profit in buying and selling a share, it really does hook you. You see, also the the investment world and the way you trade has changed significantly. In the 1990s and early 2000s, you had stockbrokers who were people. So you would actually phone somebody, speak to somebody and say, listen, I would like to buy Naspers and sell Dimension Data, for example. And that person would give you an opinion. Today, you log on, you go to Easy Equities, uh, and you need to take that decision yourself. There is no human interaction with a stockbroker. Do you think that changes the way people invest and maybe contribute to mistakes people make, Uh, especially young people who are not CAs and, and stockbrokers? It could potentially, you know, at the end of the day, your, your investment decision needs to be your own, in my view. And maybe, maybe the broker in the past might have tried to influence the decision of the individual one way or another for whatever reason. So it could lead to mistakes. But, you know, what I'd always encourage someone is to really think about what you're, what you're investing in, do the work, understand what you're buying, understand what, you, what you're selling. Um, and if you do that, you're less likely to make mistakes. Yeah, that's easier said than done because many professional investors get it wrong and sometimes more often than you would think. Uh, so, so what do you think are the key things uh, a non-accounting professional or an investment professional should consider when they do an analysis of a potential investment? To break it down into kind of two simple components that uh, we at Lorium you know, think about a lot is a share price is made up of its rating. So the rating of a, of a company is what the market is prepared to pay for the future earnings stream discounted to today. And that rating can be in the form of a price earnings multiple, a uh, enterprise value to the EBITDA. There are various ways of looking at, uh, at the rating of the company. So what people are prepared to pay and what the market is prepared to pay for the for the for the earnings of the company. The second and probably most important part is understanding the earnings trajectory. So first, it's understanding what people are prepared to pay for the earnings. And then second, what does that earnings stream or cash flow stream look like over the next three, four, five, six years? Is that earnings stream going to grow or is that earnings stream going to tail off? And if it is going to grow, how much is it going to grow by? And then you come back again to that rating. What will the market and what am I as an investor prepared to pay for that earnings stream? So it's rating and earnings, which are the two most important things at the simplest level in evaluating a company. There are, of course, a lot of other things that one can uh, one spends time analyzing. The balance sheet of the company, the indebtedness of the company, the ability to convert earnings to cash flow, etc. These things are all very important in the analysis. And that's why, you know, Rake, the, the fund management industry that I'm, I'm in at the moment has, has evolved because a number of investors are not going to have the skill set or the knowledge to be able to go and do that analysis at an individual company level. And they would then rely on people like ourselves 
to invest on their on their behalf and put a whole bunch of different companies together in a fund. Let's talk about your personal investment approach. Earlier, you referred to your father who kept on reinvesting profits into the business. Um, and, and that is a, a type of cumulative investment strategy, um, compound interest in, in many ways, more compounding of fixed assets. Do you still use that approach today within your investment uh, philosophy and the way you invest? Yes, absolutely. I think that the the most important thing about investing is to start investing and to start as early as you can, because it is that compounding effect that that eventually wins out. I I often say to my children, I wish at school, instead of them teaching all sorts of subjects that uh, the children are never going to use again, there should be a, a, a curriculum subject just on compound interest, because it's such an important component of one's investment and one's uh, and one's life frankly so the the investment philosophy i've always had is invest as early as you can with it doesn't matter if it's a small amount just put the money into an investment of of any description um, obviously do your work but uh, you know you can use a diversified fund as a pretty pretty good way of uh, of doing it and then continue investing over time don't just it can't be a one hit wonder get into the habit of taking a percentage of your salary or any money that you make in, in whatever in, in whatever way you, you make money over time and invest that money. Do it in a disciplined fashion that you that you do it every single time you receive a paycheck. And that discipline of what we term rand cost averaging, and that means that uh, you know it doesn't matter if the stock is up or the, the the fund is up or the fund is down. At points when you the fund is down, you get more units for the same amount of uh, of money that you you invest. That is a good principle of just continually investing and building that uh, um, investment book over time. Yeah, and the biggest asset young people have is time, um, because uh, absolutely the, the money, even if it's five hundred rand or a thousand rand a month over a thirty year period, it will through compound interest really uh, return uh, a significant amount. Let's talk about your hits and misses. This is always where I get a chuckle. Um, let's start off with your best investment ever. What, what investment do you regard was one that you are really, really proud of? Look, at a personal level, that uh, one, that example that I gave you um, was, uh, you know, the, the JSE rights was a very interesting one for me, and, and I did very well out of that at a personal level. You know, from a Lorian perspective, we do not allow or very much discourage our investment professionals from investing outside of our fund. So if you've got a good idea, you put the good idea into the fund, and then all of us invest in the in in the Lorium fund. So more importantly than my little foray many years ago into the into the JSE is at Lorium the things that we've got right and the things that uh, that we've got wrong. And Murray Winkler, the co-founder of Lorium, and I were chatting uh, chatting this morning. And uh, you know, ahead of this chat, and casting our minds back as to what would have been the biggest contributor to our um, our fund over the 15 years that Lorium has been in operation, and it has to be Naspers. Um, it's had an incredible compounding effect over time. In fact, I looked at it since Lorium was founded. Naspers has gone up 28 times since Lorium was founded 15 years ago. That has added a huge amount of value to um, Lorium's clients over time. But of course, you're right, Drake. You don't get everything right. You probably, if you get 60% right, you are you're going to do pretty well in the in the asset management industry. 
and there are going to be some errors that people make, professional investors make along the way. And you, you sort of said, what is one of the ones that stands out for us? I mean, the, the most painful one for uh, for me and I think for all of us here at, at Lorium was the, the Steinhoff debacle. Um, we had done a lot of work on Steinhoff. We thought we knew what was uh, what was going on there. And I will never forget the day that the news uh, that the news broke on on Steinhoff. It was a, a torrid day in uh, in our lives. Yeah, I think for for many investors, many professional investors as well, um, what had transpired there, I think, will become a, a case study for virtually every single investment course going forward for many many decades. Brian, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights. With pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me and all the best. Enjoy the weekend and enjoy the rugby. I will most certainly do that. That was Brian Thomas. He's a director and portfolio manager at Lorium Capital. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Ray Finnecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.